Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks out meaningful conversations about the issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the country who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. Those who regulate it, farm it, catch it, sell it, innovate it, and make it delicious on your plate. Today is a special show that I'm both excited and nervous about. We're gonna take a step back and look at seafood through the eyes of two men who operate on opposite ends of the supply chain, a commercial fisherman and a chef. We do so at a time when our country is having a much needed conversation about race, uh, a conversation that has been going on for hundreds of years, but that many white people like myself uh, had the privilege to ignore until recently. It's a tough and uncomfortable conversation, but it's a critical one. And I caution other white people against fooling themselves into believing that this is just a conversation about police brutality. Um, in fact, systemic racism is real. And if we're going to truly address it, we have to look at all the systems that our society are built on, the food system included. Our first guest is from Madeira Beach, Florida. Um, and his name is Captain Sean Watson. Uh, Captain Watson is a commercial longline fisherman who harvests species like gag grouper, porgies, red grouper, and snapper, many of which you have all certainly had before. He has a successful fishing business with three offshore vessels, uh, and he came to fishing as a second career after, after having sold a chain of fitness gyms to buy into the fishery. Sean is also a world-class athlete and a black belt in karate. He was a field and track star in college and has been inducted into the NCAA Hall of Fame and still holds a number of national records in the long jump. In fact, he originally moved to Florida to train for the Olympics, uh, but that dream was cut short in 2000 by a serious injury. On the other end of the country, we're joined uh, from Oakland, California by Chef Nelson Herman. Uh, Chef Nelson grew up in Manhattan's Washington Heights he started working in kitchens at a very young age and worked his way up through some of the most famous restaurants in New York City, including Gramercy Park, Citarella, and uh, Labsinth, where he was named executive chef at age 27, an incredible feat. He has staged at fine dining restaurants in Spain, Italy, France, and Holland, and combined those experiences with his Dominican-American upbringing for a very unique uh, cooking style. Today, he owns the acclaimed seafood restaurant Alamar Kitchen and Bar in Oakland. And in just March, he opened his second venture, Sobra Mesa, an Afro-Latino cocktail lounge. Thank you both so much for joining the show today. Well, we're honored to be here. Thank you for having us. So let's jump right in. Um, on May 25th in Minneapolis, George Floyd was murdered by Officer Derek Chauvin when he kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, it was one of the most brutal, inhumane, and disgusting things I've ever seen. And it was the last straw for many around the country. Um, the ensuing nationwide Black Lives Matter protests have sparked a national dialogue uh, that has given many of us a reality check that we desperately needed um, about the oppression that Black people face in this country every day. I want to start by asking both of you how you have felt about the turn of events in the last two months. Um, Chef Nelson, we'll start with you. Perfect. Um, it, it was heartbreaking watching the video. Um, I kept watching it for hours on end every day. Um, 
even my wife was asking me, are you watching the video again? This is, why are you watching that? It's going to be, it just gets you too emotional. But I just couldn't get my, my eyes off of it. Uh, thinking that it could have been me, it could have been one of my friends, could have been one of my line cooks that are black. Um, it was just absolutely insane. Um, and to finally watch that on video, when a lot of us in my community have seen that in person, was um, eye-opening for one. And it felt a lot more real because you, I knew a lot of people watching, not just a few of us who are on the block, you know, watching this happen in person. Um, so it was crazy because, you know, we're, we're in the middle of pandemic. So a lot of us are thinking about that. And then to see that all of a sudden was like, wow, what the hell is going on? You know, people should be home. What, what's, what's, why is this happening? Um, so a lot of emotions throughout that, um, you know, anger, um, emotions of, of sadness, heartbreak, um, a lot, a lot going on. And then in the, also thinking about my own business and how to keep that going. You know, there's it, so much going on. It, it was uh, really a lot of turmoil within myself and a lot of people I knew. Captain Watson, what about you? Yeah, I think I, uh, for, for me, I share a lot of the same, same emotions as, as Nelson. Uh, initially seeing it, it, for me, it was almost like, wow, is this, is this really happening? right now this way because i had heard about it but i hadn't seen the video and it took me a little bit of time to be able to actually sit down and watch watch the video because as nelson said you know you think about can that be your brother your father cousin uncle sister anyone you just kind of you think about that so when i actually saw the video and watched it through the end um my initial reaction was I was pissed off. I mean, I was, I was mad. You know, the first initial thing was like, wow, I can't believe that this just happened. And I think it's been happening for a long time, but now it's just been brought out to the open because there's so many cameras yeah. floating around. Uh, so my initial thought was anger. Uh, then the second, second emotion I had was sadness and then tears and i said wow you know this is really heartbreaking you know to see a man uh, a black man or any man for that matter on the ground crying screaming for his mother saying i can't breathe and we've heard that term yeah. for many times now it's not the first time it's, it's going on many times uh, so to see that and actually see that person physically pass away in front of all of America's eyes was heartbreaking. And it, it still is heartbreaking. Yeah. A lot of emotions going on there. And, you know, yeah. um, and it's, it's, it's hard to talk about, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I think, I think a lot of the country shared that and some of us can't directly relate, um, but you know, are feeling the the indirect anger, and, and so much of that energy has been channeled into the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, which I think is just a, a turning point for a country, an incredible moment. Um, as a white person, I've been I've been surprised by some 
of my friends and family's reaction to that movement. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, everybody is kind of going through uh, an internal struggle right now, white people going through an internal struggle right now about how to sort of fully, fully grasp um, uh, how we got where we are, how we get out of where we are, how we move forward. Um, I, I wonder sort of just a very basic question um, for both of you. When you hear the term Black Lives Matter, what, what does that mean for you? Captain, Jeff? you want to start? I can start. Um, um, you know, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Captain. Okay, thank you. Um, for me, Black Lives Matter, it, 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 for me, it's, it's a term that should have been here from the start and not just, um, not just when we started seeing deaths of Black men and women on TV. It should have been there already. Um, a lot of people that I've come across in recent days feel like Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group. You know, mm -hmm. they want to put all kinds of different labels on Black Lives Matter. And what it is, is really just a deflect, a deflect, you know, to actually stand there and face the events that are actually going on. We're saying Black Lives Matter. Everybody knows already, all lives matter. We know that. What we're saying is we're trying to give it to you that's saying, hey, Stop killing us. Stop murdering us on the streets. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that your life is less important than mine or the next person. We're saying stop killing us. Black lives matter too. And for me, that's, that's what it means. And obviously when we say that, you automatically get a deflection, you know, because people don't want to hear about it and they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been shocked by the number of my non, you know, my white and uh, friends not of color that for them, their knee-jerk reaction is to say something like all lives matter. Because when they hear that, when they hear Black Lives Matter, they think what they hear for some reason is Black Lives Matter more. Yeah, um, exactly. And and so they, they have this visceral reaction and... And we've got it. We've got to push people past that. Yeah, and I think the captain had a good point. When we said too. I think that makes a bigger statement um, and makes it more specific. You know, like you said, people hear that Black Lives Matter. Like you said, they they think also my life doesn't matter. Only Black Lives Matter, um, and they automatically spew all lives matter. But all lives can't matter if Black lives don't matter. That's that's the the defense in that people keep saying, mm -hmm. but I think if we worded Black Lives Matter too, I think that might go into people's heads and heart better than just like Black Lives Matter. So I think it's a wording thing um, because some people just don't see it. You know, they didn't grow up right. with racism. They were in all white neighborhoods. They don't know what's going on. They just see us in movies um, and on TV. So it's we need to be more specific with with our statements and our um, propaganda, if, I, may, if I, might, I might say, and really push it forward and educate people what it really means. You know, we're not saying that your life doesn't matter. It's, we've been oppressed for years. You know, our lives haven't 
mattered for years. So it has to matter for all lives to matter. That's that's the end of it, you know? Uh, that's what we're all trying to fight for. I, I think part of that education process is hearing about experiences that are different um, yeah. than our own. And and I would and I would love to 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 have both of you talk a little bit about your upbringings um, and um, you know how that what that experience was like, how your parents faced explicit racism, implicit bias, and 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 sort of how they taught you to handle it as as young men growing up. Um, I'll go. But I, I grew up in a small town in uh, Alliance, Ohio. Both my parents uh, grew up in a household, brother, um, sisters, and uh, a household with both my parents. Uh, my dad was very influential in teaching us uh, about racism and how it affected us as young men. Um, I'm 45, and at the time, you know, as a teenager, we had the Rodney King issues, and that was one of the first incidents that I actually witnessed, again, on television, but a little bit different than what we see now. I was younger, um, didn't really understand what was actually happening, but you knew that, hey, this was definitely racism, but it affected you, it affects you different, I think, as a teenager versus when you become an adult. Because once you become that adult, you can really process everything and say, this is wrong. This is what could have happened. This is what should have happened. So growing up in Alliance, we had gangs. Um, we also had a known <clears throat> white supremacy group right there in Alliance, Ohio, across the street from a park that I used to go play basketball at. It was a known um, KKK headquarters. Had a fence around it. Um, at nighttime, you didn't go to that area. It was based in a black neighborhood, but across the street. So crazy. my father, yeah, yeah yes, crazy. Um, so my father always told me and my mother too, when the street lights come on, don't let your shadow beat you in the house. I never really understood that as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old uh, kid, but my dad was telling me, hey, I'm giving you some freedom, but there's bad people out here that don't like you because of your skin color. Even though we're in a black neighborhood, there's people across the street that don't like you because of your skin color. And there was sometimes where I thought, man, is dad just being mean or what's, what's going on here? What's really happening here? But when I turned 17, we had an experienced uh, cousin of mine. We were walking, walking down the street. White van pulls up, starts yelling racial slurs. You know, Nelson, what the name, what the term was. Uh, yeah. You know, um, and that stuff happened. And that was the first time I think that <clears throat> it really sunk in what my dad and mother had been trying to tell me that, hey, there's people here that don't like you. Even though we're in a predominantly black neighborhood, 
there's people next to us that don't really care that we're here. And if you're in that area, when they're in that area, you're gonna have some backlash towards you. You're gonna be called some names. They may throw a bottle at you. Um, that happened. So um, just different things. They really just taught me how to deal with it. And like I say, my dad always said, don't let your shadow beat you in the house when the street lights go out. Because we had cross burnings. Um, you would hear about it, you know, uh, a cross burning over at the high school, a cross burning down at the church. I grew up with those things and it still haunts you till this day. Chef? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, growing up in New York City, Washington Heights, predominantly Dominican and uh, Jewish neighborhood. So um, within my own neighborhood, never got to face racism, um, fortunately for me. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, we, me personally, I have, and we're, we're going to come out and say it, there's a lot of us who are black who have lighter skin. And we get a little extra privilege compared to like Captain Sean Watson with his skin color and my mom or my cousins who are darker than me. Um, people see me and, you know, if I stay quiet and I smile, I'm okay. Um, if I speak or try to speak up, then that's when I see a lot more like pushing me down. Uh, through my career, even as a chef, you know, I, I was always the quiet person. You know, that's one thing I learned from my from my parents. It's like, just be quiet. Don't, don't don't speak up too much, which is kind of bad too. But I understood why. You know, if you don't want to see that and and really be broken down um, through the face of racism, just kind of be on the shadow, be in the corner. Don't don't be in the front line. Um, just be quiet and smile and and just do your work and and show them what you can do. You know, um, and that has got me you know, kind of far within this business, you know, like I show what I can do with my cooking. I don't say much. I do now, I'm more, way more social than I was. Um, and that's being in Oakland and California, I, I got to really see my roots and where I came from as a, with my ancestors and being a black man. You know, in New York, I just saw myself as a Latino man, but I'm Afro-Latino, I'm black. I'm a black person that speaks Spanish. I know that now and I, I feel it in, that's what drives me with what I do in my career and my restaurants um, and the movement and the charities that we do, you know, it keeps me going. And I see what other people have dealt through, you know, even seeing racism in front of me at school, you know, in middle school or high school, uh, the way people were treated for the color of their skin um, on the streets by cops. I saw that, but I was always that kid in the corner, quiet, not, not being seen, you know, and kind of hiding. So, I never personally got to experience it. Um, I got to experience it more where inequalities in wages and opportunities, you know, and having to go through a lot more obstacles than a white chef or cook would, be, would have to go through um, in that aspect, but never where it's like upfront from a police officer or someone else who's yelling racial slurs at me. I was um, very fortunate in that, but I, I got to see it with other people. Um, and it, it angers me, but again, I always learned just be quiet, be in the corner. But the person I am now, I'm not. The, I'm not quiet anymore. You know, if I see it, I, I call it out. Um, I'm there to help. I'm there to fight uh, anywhere I can. But I love to 
me personally, I like to de-escalate things and kind of fight back with kindness because as a black man, people see us as a black community as always being angry and always being violent. So I think we have yes. to fight with positivity and, and really show we know how to de-escalate things. We know how to be educated and speak um, in a way that we can calm people down and really educate somebody, not just be angry and want to fight right away um, because that's how we're perceived. You know, it's just being gangsters from the streets and hoods. I grew up in the hood, but I'm not that person, at least now, you know. Um, right. right. So that's important within our community. And, and you see it even the protesting, all the peaceful protests, it's, it's a lot of us. And then when it turns nighttime, there's people who wear white skin with masks, black mask on, and are breaking windows and vandalizing right. things. Yes. And it makes yes. us look bad. You know, mm -hmm. um, of course, there are black um, brothers and sisters out there vandalizing too. I'm not saying that they're not, but the majority, for what I've seen, even in Oakland and Bay Area, you see it on TV now too, and in, and on on camera, on a phone camera, the white or other races breaking things and just want to, you know, it could be two different things. They they're either fighting with us, which is great. Um, but we're not pushing for people to be violent and destroy businesses, especially in our own community, you know? So I see it more as they're right. doing it to make us look bad and bring, keep bringing us down because we're still the angry black people who want to break things up, hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think that's the unfortunate thing, but for what I've seen recently, it, it looks like there's real change happening. We just can't forget it. We're all being distracted by different things, pandemics and, now there's protesting recently in Oakland about, um, you know, um, in tribute to Portland and what's mm -hmm. happening over there. And there was vandalizing this past weekend, but there wasn't any black people out there. It right. wasn't about, about Black Lives Matter, it was something else. But they're out there breaking things in our community, you know, and we always get blamed for it, no matter what. Yeah, and can I touch just a little yeah. bit on that, you know, um, Good, good point where you said, you know, what we're seeing right now, you know, you see it on Facebook um, about the protesting going on. And I've got a lot of friends and, you know, and sometimes you start reading their post and what they're putting out there. It's like we can have peaceful protests and we can have hundreds of black men, women marching. And there can also be several hundreds white women white men marching with us. If something gets vandalized, the finger is automatically pointed at the black men. And it's almost like when you look at these protests, you can see it's 50-50. You know, and a lot of them is 50-50% white, 50% black. But if there's any type of vandalizing going on, Black Lives Matters is automatically blank for that instance yeah and we get the brunt of it saying oh they're thugs they're animals or why aren't they at work <laughs> you know those are those are some of the things some of the things that i hear and i'm definitely not one uh to be quiet you know i i, I speak up and i call them out right away you know um so just with the i just wanted to touch base on that with the protesting and things like that it's automatic that we just get the brunt it could be 300 white men and women walking down the street 
and five blacks. If the video comes out that there was vandalization, those five blacks were getting blamed for it. And just like Nelson said with the mask, I've seen it where there's been instances of people wearing black makeup and vandalizing yeah. things. Yeah. And we get the blame for it. Those people that are destroying those communities, I can tell you, and I'm sure Nelson can tell you the same thing I'll, I will say, those people are not from our communities. And exactly. the, 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 the example that I would use is in my hometown of Alliance, Ohio, my father and my mother lived there for a long time. And I always like to use my barber as an example. A couple barbers. I had a barber, Mr. Lanier and Malcolm. Every weekend, we sat in those barber shops and we talked and we laughed. We cried when things happened. Uh, you went to the local grocery store, Miss Gertrude. You know those families in those communities. And those families knew my parents, knew my cousins, my brothers. They knew everybody. What would it look like for me growing up from a baby to a teenager to an adult? Something breaks out, and I'm going to go down and carry a brick to Mr. Lanier's barbershop and cut my hair every weekend, and I'm going to throw a bottle through his window, and I'm going to destroy him. He's going to come outside, and he's going to say, Sean, what are you doing? I know you. I know your parents. I knew your grandparents. We don't do that. We do not go into our own communities and destroy our own communities. It may appeal and look that way, but those people are not living in those communities. They're coming in from other communities, and those people are bad people just looking for trouble, black or white. You know, they're just looking for trouble, but they're not going to go to their own community and destroy their own communities. And I hear it all the time from people, oh, well, why are you tearing down your own communities? And the first thing I say is, we don't do that. Yeah. It's not us, you know. And did you guys see the videos? There's videos on about Washington, D.C. There was uh, a couple of these uh, groups that go out there and always protest everything just to start trouble. We're paying some black men and women to break things, give right. them money, knowing that, right. you know, they're buying them out because they, they need, they, they're struggling, they need the money, they take it, and they do what the right. white man told them. Right. You know, and we For saw instance, it on camera. Right. For instance, they were at the same place. I saw a video where a three or four pallets of bricks were delivered yeah. right downtown. Yeah. To say, hey, well, I can tell you what, we're not delivering bricks coming into, <laughs> into downtown <laughs> for, for, <laughs> for a protest. Nobody does that. That's coming wow. from other places. Wow. You know? I mean, listening to these stories and your experiences, it's, it's such a reminder for me and should be for other white people how much privilege we've really enjoyed. I mean, I've never, you know, I've been pulled over for speeding many times. Hell, one time I got pulled over, I was totally drunk driving. I'd gone the wrong way down a one-way street in Washington, D.C., white cop rolled down the window the stench of booze came out of the car so strong he stepped backwards and uh you know said where are you going i was young i was in my early 20s doing stupid stuff and 
two white kids in suits in a car, and uh, he sent us on our way as long as we promised to go home, directly home. And I guarantee, Sean, if that had been you driving that car, you wouldn't have gotten the same treatment. And, but I don't, you know, we don't think about things like that. We don't think about that kind of privilege right. that we've been afforded and the kind of fear that came with, you know, even just being pulled over for speeding, um, whether or not you were going to yeah. survive that event. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, both of you later in life after those coming of age experiences have entered completely white dominated industries, uh, especially you, Sean, um, you know, being a commercial mm -hmm. fisherman. I looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data and I think about 1.5% of all commercial fishermen are, are black. Um, I'm curious if, you know, starting with you, if you tell us a little bit about what it's been like moving into those industries and navigating and building very successful businesses in that industry. Well, it's, um, it's been climbing Mount Everest <laughs> and it, it still is. It's not, um, something that's, that's easy. You know, um, I got into the business just about 14 years ago. Um, and when I initially got in, uh, I stayed in for about two years. And then actually I sold everything because I felt like I was being blackballed, um, felt like I couldn't get good information, um, just felt like I was fighting a, an uphill battle. And when I got out of it, I was just kind of like, well, wow, what, what, what did I really do? Because I started thinking back about things that my dad always told me, of, you start something, you finish it. And I felt like I didn't finish what I set out to do in commercial fishing. Um, so after about two years, I bought back into the business um, and I bought bigger boats, uh, better boats. And then there came the point where you would start hearing talk around the docks. Oh, the black guy's buying up, uh, the black guy's buying all the boats, he's buying all the businesses, he's buying all this. And actually, I had one gentleman come over to me and said, oh, you're that black guy that's buying everything, right? And I said, I don't know who you're talking about, you know, because he just didn't address me the right way, you know. Um, so I said, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no, you're the, you're the black guy that's buying all the boats. He says, no, I heard about you. And I said, what? Okay, that's, that's nice. And I went on about my way. Um, at that time, there was one other gentleman that was working as a deckhand uh, on some commercial boats. And he was African-American, Latino. And, you know, a lot of the fishermen get nicknames, okay? And this gentleman had been in the business, I guess, working on commercial boats for maybe 20 years, possibly. And when I first met him, I was kind of shocked because of the way he introduced himself to me. And <laughs> this might be shocking, but I want to say it anyway. He introduced himself to me as Nigger Eddie. And I was just like, what? What did, did, I, did I hear you right? <laughs> you know, and he said it again. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, okay, well, my name's Sean. And I don't have a nickname, just call me Sean. But I was shocked to, to hear that 
from another black man that was working in this industry. And as I got to know him, we actually became friends. He's worked off and on a couple of my boats and time. And um, I asked him one day, I said, man, well, why, why do you allow, why do you allow this name? And his words was all, it doesn't bother me. And, you know, I got into this business when I was 16 and they gave me the, they gave me the nickname and I needed a job. Um, I needed to work. He was, had gotten into some trouble, couldn't get a job anywhere else. So it was like, he just accepted that and got into the business and worked many years and still, still does some stuff, some stuff into the commercial fishing, but not as much. Um, but just for me, just kind of getting into it, I felt at one point where I was trying to get information on far as building the business, information far as who to hire in the business, um, good captains, bad captains, who's got experience, who doesn't have experience, lips were sealed. <laughs> and it was like, no, 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 lips are sealed. And then the biggest issue in our business, and which is still a big issue in our business right now is uh, the IFQ program. The IFQ program is basically kind of like, um, I guess, sharecropping, what farmers do. You have so much quota, or the crabbers, you have so much quota. Um, when that quota is gone, you're done working. So for instance, for me, um, when I was first into the business, I didn't own quota. I had to lease my quota from another gentleman. Um, or several people and 99.99% <laughs> as you know I'm probably the only black uh, commercial fishing longliner in the Gulf of Mexico I had to reach out to other owners and say hey can I lease your quota so my boats can go fishing and a lot of times they say oh no I don't have any available well I had one gentleman that really helped me along in the business. Um, and he had been in that business for 40 years. He was a white gentleman. He really helped me. And there came a point where I was trying to get quota. I would call these other boat owners or other shareholders and say, I need to buy or lease your quota from you that you're leasing, that you have advertised that you are leasing. Let me buy it so I can keep my boats fishing. Oh, no, Sean, I don't have any. I don't have any. Ten minutes later, I'll say, hey, buddy, can you make a phone call and see if you can get some quota for me? Makes the phone call. I might be sitting right there. Oh, yeah, how much do you need? Mm. And I'm going, wow. Mm. I had to do that for, for several years. You know, I, I had to do that. And then I bought and sold quota. Um, I started buying my shares. Um, trading shares and then eventually um i was able to kind of break through make some friends um meet some good people that said hey if you need something i will help you just call me first and i was able to build some relationships um but it's still even till today it's it's still a very um uphill battle 
because even as far as me hiring crew, hiring captains, <clears throat> it can be almost a day-by-day, day-by-day thing. And a lot of times when the crews come down for work, sometimes you might hear them say, oh, you're working for that black man or, or you're working on the other side. You, you've, you've jumped the fence. You're not working with us anymore. I hear those things, you know. Um, I've, heard, I've heard on the dock uh, people are actually working for me. I've actually heard them use the term nigger, you know. Um, and I turn and look at them and I say, what'd you just say? Oh, boss, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean anything by it. If you have to apologize to me, you already messed up, you know, so doesn't fly. See you later. You know, goodbye. <laughs> so uh, it's well, a hard, it's a hard uphill battle. And, and I'm sure if it's something that slipped out of their mouth right in front of you, it's probably something that comes out of their mouth all the time when you're not around. Yeah. Um, yeah right. You know, it's interesting you talk. So I worked in federal fisheries management for years. Mm-hmm. And the individual fishing quota program is is hailed as a huge success story. I mean, it's helped rebuild a lot of the fisheries around the country. West Coast groundfish, Gulf of Mexico snapper and grouper has been a huge conservation success story. And for many people, an economic success story. But you're highlighting some real issues on uh, in terms of who has access to that economic success which is a pretty common thread in, right. in all of our systems and our, our entire food system. Um, I need to take a quick break so that we can uh, recognize the sponsors of the show. Um, when we come back, uh, Chef, I'd love to, to hear your experiences in, 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 in building your business and getting to the top of the rung in, in a very white-dominated uh, industry in the restaurant industry. Uh, we'll be right back. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. Uh, Chef, uh, let's start with you and, and, and hear your story about moving up the rungs of the ladder in the restaurant industry, which has also been historically a very white dominated industry. Definitely. definitely. 
Yeah, I, I've been in the business 21 years now. Um, definitely a long, long journey and still a lot more to, a lot more to do. Um, I, you know, started in New York City. Citarella was the first place I worked at. And, you know, it was a pretty diverse uh, group of us. Um, of course, everyone in the front of the house was all white, bartenders, servers, managers. Um, so we just stayed in the kitchen. No one saw us. No one knew who was cooking their food. They just saw the white chef and all everyone in the front. Um, so for me, it was just like one of those things, you know, just again, the way I grew up, like kind of stay quiet, observe, absorb as much as you can. You know, it's always about absorbing knowledge. Uh, just like Captain did with his industry, he absorbed and learned different things. And then now he's like pushing forward for everything. Kind of like I'm doing now. You know, working my way up, um, I got good opportunities just because of my cooking. You know, I think you show your talents and, you know, if you're really meant for that industry, you're, you're there. You know, no one can stop you. Um, but of course, there's a lot of more obstacles out there. I think for me personally, like I said earlier, it's, it's more about inequalities with wages and, and those opportunities to get it quickly. Um, you know, I, even in New York, um, you know, after Citarella, worked a couple great restaurants. Uh, the most notable one was the actually hotel, Gramercy Park Hotel. Um, got to cook for celebrities, got to work under one of the original Irish chefs, usually Waikia. So that was an amazing opportunity. Um, again, the hotel business was uh, very diverse in a way, at least in New York. So I kind of fit in. And again, I think being lighter skin gave me a little extra privilege, which is um, an unfortunate thing too, to kind of have to see that compared to what my friends will have to deal with. But um, I let my cooking do all the talking. You know, again, I was always that quiet kid, just absorbing and learning. Uh, hardly ever asked questions unless I really needed to. So I think they kind of respected that, um, where again, I didn't speak up as much until I got those opportunities. Like when, for example, when I first got to be an executive chef and most of my crew were Mexicans, um, you know, they just thought I was just a black man. So I can hear them talking a lot of shit behind the back in Spanish. And I let it go for a while until I started speaking Spanish and I'm like, oh, wow. I didn't know you were, <laughs> you spoke Spanish. Um, I didn't know you were Latino or black. Uh, we thought you were just black. I'm black, but we're also mm -hmm. Latinos, man. Um, please don't disrespect me ever again. I'm, I'm, I'm your, your chef. I'm one of you guys, part of the team. This is supposed to be about family. You know, that's what the restaurant industry is. Um, that, that's not cool. And ever since that, it, you know, that first team started respecting me. Go to another place, Jerry's Cafe, went through the same thing. Because I, I would always be quiet. I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak any Spanish until I really needed to. Um, just to kind of hear what's going on in the background, you know. And again, it's always the, the talking smack. Oh, what's, what's this guy? Moreno is the term. Or Negrito doing here. And, and he's my boss. What is he going to show me? And then I'm like, start showing him something. And you start seeing the respect level. It's always about what you can do and what you can show with your actions that speak louder. Um, you know, and again, I think because I was lighter skin, it was kind of easier to kind of get used to, you know, um, again, it's an unfortunate thing, uh, that I have to go through that, but 
fortunately for me, I, I didn't have too many crazy, crazy obstacles uh, with racism facing that. Um, I think for me personally, the biggest obstacles I had were really getting the opportunities quickly. Like even if I came in and they knew I can cook, I would have to go through so much from, from the bottom of the barrel, you know, um, and move my way up years and years and years. I would work in places for two years, three years, um, and I wouldn't get the best opportunity until there was nobody else to hire. You know, one guy would leave, they couldn't hire somebody in, in time. Okay, let's just put Nelson up there. Let's see what he can do. Instead of like promoting from within all the time and seeing how I, good I was doing. And again, I wouldn't ask too many questions. I would ask the right questions. Um, I would always do my work and, and do it proper because I didn't want to get yelled at. Um, you know, there was never any ass or, or asking me how, I'm, how do I feel? You know, how can we help you? I always had to come forward, you know, and, and I can see that. Like, I wasn't getting those opportunities. But again, I would just research on the back end, going home, really go get into my craft and show them what I can do until they, they're, they're like, wow. Okay, but let's let's give him a little bit of opportunity, but not much. Let's see what we can do now. But it will take a long time to get those opportunities mm. compared to somebody who comes in clean cut, blonde hair, blue eyes, and looks like a chef, but can't cook for his life. Um, <laughs> okay, let's let's put him in the grill station and pay him seventeen dollars an hour while I was getting minimum wage, you know, but still have more experience. Mm. Um, but again, I would stay quiet and just keep doing my work. You know, it's one of those things you kind of, in certain industries where especially white dominated, you learn as a person of color, just to, just be quiet and just do your work and hopefully you get the opportunity. Um, I think that has changed for now. I think now we're definitely speaking up because we have our peers from the past who are black and have come up so high as amazing chefs. Um, people see us more in cookbooks, on cooking shows. You know, Marcus Samuelson is a big example. He has come up through so much. He's one of the best chefs in, in the nation um, and in the world. And he shows his blackness, you know, like the guy cooks, you know, food from Switzerland where he grew up and amazing things. Nobody knew who it was coming from a black man, Aquavit. He, he broke a couple barriers. Now he's showing who he is. You know, and that motivates me as a black man to really show who I am, show my roots and, you know, keep pushing that barrier. And then with opening Alomar and Sodomesa, you know, Alomar was more like, okay, I'm showcasing my, it's a passion project, my first restaurant, first baby, dream come true. I just want to show what I can do and, and just cook, you know, cook things that I have um, learned through my journey as a chef. It was never about, like it is now, about a movement and showcasing a larger part of uh, the Black diaspora, you know, um, showcasing more of myself and how I grew up and where I come from. You know, that I've learned throughout the years, learned from being in Oakland because it's such an activist city uh, through the history of Black Panthers and all that and what's the way people, you know, push forward those, those um, and try to break those barriers um, motivates me. So, you know, Alamar throughout the years first is it's just about being the best chef, 
no one knew it was, it was black owned. You know, people would just see the food and be like, oh, this is amazing. You know, there was even instances where my servers, people asked, oh, who's the chef and owner? And my server would point at me and people were shocked. And sometimes they wouldn't even believe it. You know, that, oh, that's, that can't be the chef. He's cooking this kind of food. Look, at, look how beautiful the presentation is. And mm. this just can't be, you know, all, all they could do is cook fried chicken, waffles and soul food, greens and all that. This is, this is not black food where he learned this. Again, it bothered me, but stood quiet. It was all about, let me just show an action, you know, and throughout the years and years, people finally started realizing even my own community, oh, this is a black man doing this food and really doing something different, you know? And that's my philosophy to show a different style, show that as a black man, I can cook different styles of food. Um, I can show a broader sense of cooking within the black food community um, and really push those barriers within not just for what's going on politically and, and racially, but also within my community. Sometimes we're, we're racial to each other, you know? Um, again, people saw that my food and be like, oh, this can't be from a black man. And that came from black people sometimes too, you know? Right. So, um, you know, kept pushing forward and now people know who I am. People know what Almore is about. Um, they can feel the soul, you know, soul food. is not just greens and fried chicken and mac and cheese. Soul food is broad and it, our African diaspora is so broad. We, we come from all over the world. You know, some of us that speak Spanish, some of us have English accents. Um, some of us are North African and have Arabic backgrounds. Um, some of us speak French we're out there, you know, but I think we're we need alive. to show that. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we have to educate our own people that we, we are broader, we, all, we are worldwide, you know? Um, and that's my motivation now, even with opening Sobremesa as an Afro-Latino cocktail bar, not just a regular cocktail bar, is showcasing more of the, that big diaspora, showcasing, you know, the Afro-Caribbean side of being black. Um, and with my food, I'm, I'm taking a lot of things back to African uh, descent and the way the food is, the ingredients I'm using, but also showcase, showcasing Latino um, and some of my Dominican roots and really pushing forward, man. Just like doing something sexy, doing something new and unique that people who are white don't expect from us, you know? Um, and now I have two places and still doing my thing. I'm in amazing shows like this, you know, and podcasts and getting, getting those opportunities I probably, I feel like I deserve and have fought for and climbed the ladder for. You know, it took a long time, but it's still there, you know, and I just, I just want more. And now I want more for my people and to continue the movement to show that, you know, break those barriers for us, for the young folks who can grow up and see me or see Captain and be like, wow, that's a black man doing great things and doing something unique. I can do that too. Yeah. Both incredible stories. Um, you're you talking about staying quiet um, really hits a chord for me. One it makes me sad that you were operating in a system where you felt like you had to do that in order to, to achieve, but also putting the mirror up to myself. I feel like one of the things that I've learned in the last couple of months with a lot of reflection and a lot of listening to conversations like this and 
seeking out resources like reading White Fragility recently is that personally my, science, my, my silence uh, is a real problem. Um, and you know, I, I fooled myself into believing I wasn't a racist for years because I rejected sort of explicit racism, the use of the N-word and, uh, but in reality, I think, I think you can't, you have to be an anti-racist um, because there's no middle ground. There's no, you know, complicity or silence by white people really is um, an acceptance of, of a system of racism um, and implicit bias. And so I encourage a lot of people white people to think about that, to think about what their silence really means um, and, and not being complicit in a system where both of you have had the kind of challenges that you've faced, um, which is just not right. Um, and, and so I pose this question to you, what can, looking at white people in your industry, chefs, fishermen, people in the seafood supply chain, what can white people who hold positions of power do to be better allies for you um, as we go through this, this national conversation and hopefully an evolution uh, for the better? Captain, you wanna take that first? I think it's um, pretty much just, uh, it's really simple if people would just open up their minds, open up their hearts and just listen, just listen, give those opportunities, um, regardless of color, you know, give those opportunities. The way, the way it has to be done is there has to be open communication between white and black. Um, and it has to be communication to where it doesn't come to an argument. Because a lot of times when you start talking about race, it automatically, it's almost like politics, it automatically gets um, anger or deflection. So I think the majority of it has to be education and just listening. You know, most, most of the people that are um, giving the, the, the racial bias towards blacks, you're just not listening. You know, for instance, like, uh, Nelson said, we need to have Black Lives Matter too. I, I never thought of that until now, but putting that little two at the end gives it a different dialogue. And maybe that's what needs to happen. But people just need to sit and start listening. You know, we're not saying that we're better um, or your life is better than ours. We just want to be accepted as equal, given the same opportunities. Um, so it just has to be education, conversations, and a lot of time, because I think it's gonna take a lot of time to get through this. I don't think it's gonna happen in the next year. I don't think it's gonna happen in the next 10 years. But I think if we continually have conversations, open conversations, round tables, conversations like this, to where we can sit and talk freely amongst each other without arguing or getting to a point where it's like, oh, I just can't talk to you. You don't understand and walking away. As long as that happens, we're never going to get anywhere. So I think for in my industry, um, 
even though I'm a black owner, I'm very well involved in <clears throat> a lot of the fishery meetings now. Um, and I do sit quiet in some of those meetings, but I do get up and give public testimony now that it's been some years. Um, but when it comes to like the seafood change and the people that are buying my product, uh, I'm gonna say probably 99.9% don't know that they're getting their product from a black owner. Uh, so I never have those conversations with, uh, you know, the restaurants or the grocery stores or the wholesalers. I don't have that direct contact. All they really know is they're getting fresh seafood. You know, um, when it comes into play is when I go to those meetings and I stand up on the podium and I'm in a room and you've been to the meetings. <laughs> I think I met you in Key West. You've been to the meetings and it's uh, 60, 70 white men and women. And here comes Sean strolling up to the podium and you can hear, blah, 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 blah. you can hear all the mumble jumble. Who's this guy? Well, what is he doing? And then when I speak, they go, oh, okay. So it just has to be an open conversation, education and listening. Chef, how can we be, be a better ally for, for you and, and the restaurant industry and the handful of black chefs who are moving up the ladder as chef owners like yourself. Yeah. Um, I agree with, with Captain about, um, you know, education, I think is a big thing. Uh, the support factor of even just having a conversation, asking how we're feeling, you know, how can we, you know, and teaching more, you know, I think learning and absorbing like I have, it was key for me to move up the ladder. So, you know, like I, I mentor my guys right now and I'm always about encouraging and, and, you know, motivating. I think that has to be the same, like motivate people of color, uh, teach them new things. If you know more, you know, not just for the white kid, that's, that acts like he knows everything. Um, you know, just giving knowledge, passing on knowledge, I think is very important. I think it's what we all need. It, it, it makes you feel good when you learn something new. Um, it makes you feel more empowered. So I think it's that feeling of empowerment is, is going to be important. Um, as any, an amazing white chef um, who I worked under, Jeremy Culver, was great. He didn't see color. He, he saw just a big family. And he was important in my pivot in how I grew up in this business and saw it about how there's no racism in food, but there's racism around us. You know, so we all have to come together and really empower each other. You know, and I think that comes with just going up to somebody and see how they're doing. How can I help you? Let me teach you this, you know, so you can take on to your next, your next spot, you know, and become an amazing chef. So I think that comes with the opportunities and opportunities come with, with learning new skill sets um, that you can take on for you to move up that. So I think um, that feeling of empowering someone to make them feel good, they can feel equal. It's the most important thing. Um, and just, and that comes with support. You know, people now are supporting black owned businesses here in, in Oakland, especially in the Bay area as a big movement. Um, you know, the blackout Tuesday that happens, that's still going on every month now where everyone will buy from a person of color business, you know, that helps, but 
we need it to be just more than a fad. That's a one day thing. Right. Be something more and be it because you're support, you want to support that person and their product is good. You know, even us as, as a black community, if we're business owners and we create a product, we have to make sure it's great. You know, not mm -hmm. just like expect to make money because we're black and, you know, all support me because I'm a black man. No, support me because my product is amazing, you know, because you enjoy it. You enjoy your experience here at Alamar Soda Mesa. That means more to us than anything, not just getting support and, and the pittiness, you know, like we don't want people's pity. We, we want to be equal. We want to feel equal. We want to be empowered by others too. And we want to empower others ourselves because we know a lot too. We have, even during the pandemic as a business owner, a lot of the black businesses are, are still thriving because we have been through so much before and all these obstacles and all, and all these struggles that even during a pandemic is a struggle for all of us, but we have dealt through a lot of this. So we, we are surviving while others are not. So what we're doing as, as black chefs and black owners, it's helping our white, other white owners of restaurants and empowering them of how to survive through this, you know, how to go through these struggles because they, they didn't go through much. They go through the normal business struggles, of course, as business owners, there's, you know, it's the hardest thing in the world, but right now with the pandemic going on, there's not those opportunities that people usually get. So right. it's within your own business and trying to be creative and support other people and give back where that's the only way to survive, you know? So um, I think empowering it is, is it'll be the key. And I think one thing that's very important is education for our kids, you know, even in school, mm -hmm. educating them on, on black history, not just like black history month, but broader on that. Right. One big example is Juneteenth growing up in New York. I didn't know what Juneteenth was. Now it's becoming a national holiday. You know, I should have known, I should have learned that years ago, you know? Um, and that's the fact I that being with. here in Oak, yeah, being here in Oakland in California, that activist um, nature that we have here has taught me that, you know, I think we need to teach that more and a lot more history, you know, especially like, um, you know, now you see people taking out statues of, of you know, Chris Columbus and other guys who are slave owners. Teaching, teaching that in school will be very important too. And teaching the negatives of, of a person, but also some of the positives they did. I don't think we should just like denounce everybody. There's a lot of people out there who or presidents where people are taking down their monuments who did great things. You know, Abraham Lincoln is one. Um, people were trying to, you know, deface his, his thing. He helped end slavery in some ways, but he didn't do everything well. Well, let's, let's show positives of people. You know, let's not just like want to denounce everybody and, and erase history. I think even the negatives, we need to teach that so, people, so it doesn't happen again. You know, that comes with the, the conversation of having things and education is a big key. I think that's so important. And in particular, I think we need to do a lot better, for, you know, from my chef food lens, I think we need to do a lot better job of teaching people the history of our nation's food system. Mm -hmm. um, there are some dark, dark things there. I mean, you know, we exterminated the first peoples of this this nation largely by cutting off their food supply and wiping out Buffalo. Yeah. So we could take that land for ourselves to grow our own food. You know, the kind of the first industrial agriculture system of this country was built off of the backs of slavery. Um, not to mention the slaves that we brought here, we co-opted 
the culinary contributions that they brought to our country um, without credit. Um, you know, we set up a land ownership system that was that benefited white white people largely. Um, you know, modern industrial agriculture is is centered around white ownership. Um, and even in the restaurant industry, I mean, you and I both know in culinary school, we're taught a brigadier system and, and the yeah. and culinary fundamentals that are based off French cooking that was all very, yeah. very white. Um, not to mention that the crops that we, and the produce that we eat every day are picked by immigrants who are paid way less than they should be and nothing near a living wage. There, there are a lot of things. There's a lot, our food system is built on a large amount of systemic racism. And the only way we're going to work our way out of that is by first teaching people about it and, and not whitewashing yeah. it. So I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Any final thoughts you want to add in before we, we wrap up? Um, just, um, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> okay. Just um, from me, you know, uh, for the whole world, just love each other. You know, my grandmother always used to tell me, she says, Love your neighbor. You may need them one day. They may need, they may need you. Um, the only way we're going to get through racism is to love one another, talk to one another, educate one another, and have open conversations without uh, deflection. Because it's very easy to deflect when you don't want to take the problem on head on. That's it. And going on that, um, yeah, it, it's time to, to show love, to empower each other, um, to bring a better future. You know, let's not forget we're in the middle of, of a crazy pandemic um, and we, we're, we need each other. We need each other to survive this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people dying out there, um, yes. you know, so we, we need to hold each other accountable, hold the bad people accountable and educate. Education is the key. Um, and just support each other as well. Support your small businesses, especially. Um, there's the restaurant industry is struggling right now because of the pandemic, sheltering in place. Uh, a lot of great restaurants aren't coming back. So you need to help um, your favorite restaurant uh, to keep them afloat. There's a lot of people of color who work in, in restaurants. So if you want to support this movement, definitely help in that aspect. Buy, buy gift cards, get some great takeout. Um, Buy some great ingredients, you know, like there, we all need to support and help. Sage advice from both of you. For my part, I, I want white diners and people who love food to think about their seafood and where it comes from. You know, imagine for a moment, a perfect pan seared grouper filet that is, you know, over some jasmine rice and a nice uh, pineapple beurre blanc with a mango salsa on top and that that grouper very well could have been caught by captain sean watson and and, and cooked by chef nelson herman and you know before we go about just enjoying you know being blissful and enjoying great seafood we need to think about the system from where it came from uh, the people who caught it the people who processed it uh, the people who drove it across the country to their favorite restaurant and the chef who cooked it for them and, and the struggles that they've been from, through and the barriers they've faced, uh, you know, that, that's the very least we can do for our part and being more thoughtful 
about how to fix some of the problems in, in, in including in the food system and the seafood system. And, and I can't thank yeah. both of you enough for helping bring some of that forward and telling us about your experiences today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings us to a close for this episode. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to Seafoodie. I hope you found this conversation to be thought-provoking. Uh, I always welcome your feedback and future show ideas, and you can reach me at robertevansjones.com. And to find additional episodes, uh, please subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you normally download your podcast. Until next time, I wish you calm seas.